Section 094 of the Book of Household Management. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton. Domestic Servants, Chapter 41, Part 2. The Coach House and Stables. 2203. The horse is the noblest of quadrupeds, whether we view him in his strength, his sagacity, or his beauty. He is also the most useful to man of all the animal creation, but his delicacy is equal to his power and usefulness. No other animal, probably, is so dependent on man in the state of domestication to which he has been reduced or deteriorate so rapidly under exposure, bad feeding, or bad grooming. It is therefore a point of humanity, not to speak of its obvious impolicy, for the owner of horses to overlook any neglect in their feeding or grooming. His interest dictates that so valuable an animal should be well housed, well fed, and well groomed and he will do well to acquire so much of stable lore as will enable him to judge of these points himself. In a general way, where a horse's coat is habitually rough and untidy, there is a sad want of elbow grease in the stable. When a horse of tolerable breeding is dull and spiritless, he is getting ill or badly fed, and where he is observed to perspire much in the stables, is overfed and probably eats his litter in addition to his regular supply of food. 2,204. Stables. The architectural form of the stables will be subject to other influences than ours. We confine ourselves, therefore, to their internal arrangements. They should be roomy in proportion to the number of stalls, warm with good ventilation, and perfectly free from cold draughts. The stalls, roomy without excess, with good and well-trapped drainage so as to exclude bad smells. A sound ceiling to prevent the entrance of dust from the hayloft, which is usually above them. And there should be plenty of light, coming, however, either from above or behind, so as not to glare in the horse's eye. 2205. Heat. The first of these objects is attained if the stables are kept within a degree or two of fifty degrees in winter, and sixty degrees in summer, although some grooms insist on a much higher temperature, in the interests of their own labor. 2206. Ventilation is usually attained by the insertion of one or more tubes or boxes of wood or iron through the ceiling and the roof, with a sloping covering over the opening, to keep out rain, and valves or ventilators below to regulate the atmosphere, with openings in the walls for the admission of fresh air. This is still a difficulty, however, for the effluvium of the stable is difficult to dispel, and draughts must be avoided. This is sometimes accomplished by means of hollow walls with gratings at the bottom outside for the exit of bad air, which is carried down through the hollow walls and discharged at the bottom, while for the admission of fresh air, the reverse takes place. The fresh by this means gets diffused and heated before it is discharged into the stable. 2207. 
The stalls should be divided by partitions of woodwork eight or nine feet high at the head and six at the heels, and nine feet deep, so as to separate each horse from its neighbor. A hay rack placed within easy reach of the horse, of wood or iron, occupies either a corner or the whole breadth of the stall, which should be about six feet for an ordinary-sized horse. A manger, formerly of wood, but of late years more generally of iron lined with enamel, occupies a corner of the stall. The pavement of the stall should be nearly level, with a slight incline towards the gutter to keep the bed dry, paved with hard Dutch brick laid on edge, or asphalt, or smithy clinkers, or rubble stones laid in strong cement. In the center, about five feet from the wall, a grating should be firmly fixed in the pavement, and in communication with a well-trapped drain to carry off the water. The gutter outside the stall should also communicate with the drains by trapped openings. The passage between the stall and the hall should be from five to six feet broad at least. On the wall opposite to each stall, pegs should be placed for receiving the harness and other things in daily use. 2208 a harness room is indispensable to every stable. It should be dry and airy, and furnished with a fireplace and boiler, both for the protection of the harness and to prepare mashes for the horses when required. The partition wall should be boarded where the harness goes, with pegs to hang the various pieces of harness on, with saddle trees to rest the saddles on, a cupboard for the brushes, sponges, and leathers, and a lock-up corn bin. 2209 The furniture of a stable with coach house consists of coach mops, jacks for raising the wheels, horse brushes, spoke brushes, water brushes, crest and bit brushes, dandy brushes, curry combs, birch and heath brooms, trimming combs, scissors and pickers, oil cans and brushes, harness brushes of three sorts, leathers, sponges for horse and carriage, staple forks, dung baskets or wheelbarrow, corn sieves and measures, horse cloths and stable pails, horn or glass lanterns. Over the stables there should be accommodation for the coachman or groom to sleep. Accidents sometimes occur, and he should be at hand to interfere. Duties of the Coachman, Groom, and Stable Boy 2210 The establishment we have in view will consist of coachman, groom, and stable boy, who are capable of keeping in perfect order four horses, and perhaps the pony. Of this establishment the coachman is chief. Besides skill in driving, he should possess a good general knowledge of horses. He has usually to purchase provender to see that the horses are regularly fed and properly groomed, watch over their condition, apply simple remedies to trifling ailments in the animals under his charge, and report where he observes symptoms of more serious ones which he does not understand. He has either to clean the carriage himself or see that the stable boy does it properly. 2211 
The groom's first duties are to keep his horses in condition, but he is sometimes expected to perform the duties of a valet, to ride out with his master on occasions to wait at table and otherwise assist in the house. In these cases he should have the means of dressing himself and keeping his clothes entirely away from the stables. In the morning, about six o'clock, or rather before, the stables should be opened and cleaned out, and the horses fed. First by cleaning the rack and throwing in fresh hay, putting it lightly in the rack, that the horses may get it out easily, a short time afterwards their usual morning feed of oats should be put into the manger. While this is going on, the stable boy has been removing the stable dung, and sweeping and washing out the stables, both of which should be done every day, and every corner carefully swept, in order to keep the stable sweet and clean. The real duties of the groom follow. Where the horses are not taken out for early exercise, the work of grooming immediately commences. Having tied up the head, to use the excellent description of the process given by old Barrett, take a curry-comb, and curry him all over the body, to raise the dust, beginning first at the neck, holding the left cheek of the headstall in the left hand, and curry him from the setting on of his head all over the body to the buttocks, down to the point of the hock, then change your hands, and curry him before, on his breast, and, laying your right arm over his back, join your right side to his left, and curry him all under the belly near the forebowels, and so all over from the knees and back upwards. After that, go to the far side, and do that likewise. Then take a dead horse's tail, or, failing that, a cotton dusting cloth, and strike that away which the curry-comb hath raised. Then take a round brush made of bristles, with a leathern handle, and dress him all over, both head, body, and legs, to the very fetlocks, always cleansing the brush from the dust by rubbing it with the curry-comb. In the curry-combing process, as well as brushing, it must be applied with mildness, especially with fine-skinned horses, otherwise the tickling irritates them much. The brushing is succeeded by a hair-cloth, with which rub him all over again very hard, both to take away loose hairs and lay his coat. Then wash your hands in fair water, and rub him all over while they are wet, as well over the head as the body. Lastly, take a clean cloth, and rub him all over again till he be dry. Then take another hair cloth, and rub all his legs exceeding well from the knees and hocks downwards to his hoofs picking and dressing them very carefully about the fetlocks, so as to remove all gravel and dust which will sometimes lie in the bending of the joints. In addition to the practice of this old writer, modern grooms add wisping, which usually follows brushing. The best wisp is made from a hay-band, untwisted, and again doubled up after being moistened with water. This is applied to every part of the body, as the brushing had been, by changing the hands, taking care in all these operations to carry the hand in the direction of the coat. Stains on the hair are removed by sponging, or, 
when the coat is very dirty, by the water brush, the whole being finished off by a linen or flannel cloth. The horse cloth should now be put on by taking the cloth in both hands, with the outside next you, and, with your right hand to the off side, throw it over his back, placing it no farther back than will leave it straight and level, which will be about a foot from the tail. Put the roller round and the pad piece under it, about six or eight inches from the forelegs. The horse's head is now loosened. He is turned about in his stall to have his head and ears rubbed and brushed over every part, including throat, with the dusting cloth, finishing by pulling his ears, which all horses seem to enjoy very much. This done, the mane and foretop should be combed out, passing a wet sponge over them, sponging the mane on both sides, by throwing it back to the midriff to make it lie smooth. The horse is now returned to his headstall, his tail combed out, cleaning it of stains with a wet brush or sponge, trimming both tail and mane, and forelock when necessary, smoothing them down with a brush on which a little oil has been dropped. 2212. Watering usually follows dressing, but some horses refuse their food until they have drunk. The groom should not, therefore, lay down exclusive rules on this subject, but study the temper and habits of his horse. 2213. Exercise. All horses not in work require at least two hours exercise daily, and in exercising them a good groom will put them through the paces to which they have been trained. In the case of saddle horses, he will walk, trot, canter, and gallop them, in order to keep them up to their work. With draft horses, they ought to be kept up to a smart walk and trot. 2214 Feeding must depend on their work, but they require feeding three times a day, with more or less corn each time, according to their work. In the fast coaching days it was a saying among proprietors that his belly was the measure of his food, but the horse's appetite is not to be taken as a criterion of the quantity of food under any circumstances. Horses have been known to consume 40 pounds of hay in 24 hours, whereas 16 pounds to 18 pounds is the utmost which they should have been given. Mr. Kroll, an extensive coach proprietor in Scotland, limited his horses to four and a half pounds cut straw, eight pounds bruised oats, and two and a half pounds bruised beans in the morning and noon giving them at night 25 pounds of the following, viz. 560 pounds steamed potatoes, 36 pounds barley dust, 40 pounds cut straw, and 6 pounds salt, mixed up together. Under this the horses did their work well. The ordinary measure given a horse is a peck of oats, about 40 pounds, to the bushel, twice a day, a third feed and a rackful of hay, which may be about 15 pounds, or 18 pounds, when he is in full work. 2215. You cannot take up a paper without having the question put, Do you bruise your oats? Well, that depends on circumstances. 
A fresh young horse can bruise its own oats when it can get them. But aged horses, after a time, lose the power of masticating and bruising them, and bolt them whole, thus much impeding the work of digestion. For an old horse, then, bruise the oats. For a young one, it does no harm and little good. Oats should be bright and dry, and not too new. Where they are new, sprinkle them with salt and water, otherwise they overload the horse's stomach. Chopped straw mixed with oats, in the proportion of a third of straw or hay, is a good food for horses in full work, and carrots, of which horses are remarkably fond, have a perceptible effect in a short time on the gloss of the coat. 2216. The water given to a horse merits some attention. It should not be too cold. Hard water is not to be recommended. Stagnant or muddy water is positively injurious. River water is the best for all purposes, and anything is preferable to spring water, which should be exposed to the sun in summer for an hour or two, and stirred up before using it. A handful of oatmeal thrown into the pail will much improve its quality. 2217. Shoeing. A horse should not be sent on a journey or any other hard work immediately after new shoeing. The stiffness incidental to new shoes is not unlikely to bring him down. A day's rest, with reasonable exercise, will not be thrown away after this operation. On reaching home very hot, the groom should walk him about for a few minutes. This done, he should take off the moisture with the scraper, and afterwards wisp him over with a handful of straw and a flannel cloth. If the cloth is dipped in some spirit, all the better. He should wash, pick, and wipe dry the legs and feet, take off the bridle and crupper, and fasten it to the rack, then the girths and put a wisp of straw under the saddle. When sufficiently cool, the horse should have some hay given him, and then a feed of oats. If he refuse the latter, offer him a little wet bran, or a handful of oatmeal in tepid water. When he has been fed, he should be thoroughly cleaned, and his body clothes put on, and, if very much harassed with fatigue, a little good ale or wine will be well bestowed on a valuable horse, adding plenty of fresh litter under the belly. 2218. Bridles. Every time a horse is unbridled, the bit should be carefully washed and dried, and the leather wiped, to keep them sweet, as well as the girths and saddle the latter being carefully dried and beaten with a switch before it is again put on. In washing a horse's feet after a day's work, the master should insist upon the legs and feet being washed thoroughly with a sponge until the water flows over them, and then rubbed with a brush till quite dry. 2219. Harness, if not carefully preserved, very soon gets a shabby, tarnished appearance. Where the coachman has a proper harness-room and sufficient assistance, this is inexcusable and easily prevented. 
the harness room should have a wooden lining all round and be perfectly dry and well ventilated. Around the walls, hooks and pegs should be placed for the several pieces of harness and at such a height as to prevent their touching the ground. And every part of the harness should have its peg or hook, one for the halters, another for the reins, and others for snaffles and other bits and metalwork, and either a wooden horse or saddle trees for the saddles and pads. All these parts should be dry, clean, and shining. This is only to be done by careful cleaning and polishing, and the use of several requisite pastes. The metallic parts, when white, should be cleaned by a soft brush and plate powder. The copper and brass parts burnished with rottenstone powder and oil, steel with emery powder, both made into a paste with a little oil. 2220. An excellent paste for polishing harness and the leather work of carriages is made by melting eight pounds of yellow wax, stirring it till completely dissolved. Into this pour one pound of litharge of the shops, which has been pounded up with water and dried and sifted through a sieve, leaving the two, when mixed, to simmer on the fire, stirring them continually till all is melted. When it is a little cool, mix this with one and one quarter pound of good ivory black. Place this again on the fire, and stir till it boils anew, and suffer it to cool. When cooled a little, add distilled turpentine, till it has the consistence of a thickish paste, scenting it with any essence at hand, thinning it when necessary from time to time, by adding distilled turpentine. 2221. When the leather is old and greasy, it should be cleaned before applying this polish, with a brush wetted in a weak solution of potass and water, washing afterwards with soft river water, and drying thoroughly. If the leather is not black, one or two coats of black ink may be given before applying the polish. When quite dry, the varnish should be laid on with a soft shoe brush, using also a soft brush to polish the leather. 2222. When the leather is very old, it may be softened with fish oil, and, after putting on the ink, a sponge charged with distilled turpentine passed over to scour the surface of the leather, which should be polished as above. 2223. For fawn or yellow-colored leather, take a quart of skimmed milk, pour into it one ounce of sulfuric acid, and, when cold, add to it four ounces of hydrochloric acid, shaking the bottle gently until it ceases to emit white vapors. Separate the coagulated from the liquid part by straining through a sieve and store it away till required. In applying it, clean the leather by a weak solution of oxalic acid, washing it off immediately, and apply the composition when dry with a sponge. 2224. Wheel grease is usually purchased at the shops, but a good paste is made as follows. 
Melt 80 parts of grease and stir into it, mixing it thoroughly and smoothly. 20 parts of fine black lead in powder and store away in a tin box for use. This grease is used in the mint at Paris and is highly approved. 2225. Carriages, in an endless variety of shapes and names, are continually making their appearance, but the hackney cab or Clarence seems most in request for light carriages. The family carriage of the day being a modified form of the Clarence adopted for family use. The carriage is a valuable piece of furniture, requiring all the care of the most delicate upholstery, with the additional disadvantage of continual exposure to the weather and to the muddy streets. 2226 It requires, therefore, to be carefully cleaned before putting away, and a coach house perfectly dry and well ventilated, for the woodwork swells with moisture. It shrinks also with heat, unless the timber has undergone a long course of seasoning. It should also have a dry floor, a boarded one being recommended. It must be removed from the ammoniacal influence of the stables, from open drains and cesspools, and other gaseous influences likely to affect the paint and varnish. When the carriage returns home, it should be carefully washed and dried, and that, if possible, before the mud has time to dry on it. This is done by first well slushing it with clean water, so as to wash away all particles of sand, having first closed the sashes to avoid wetting the linings. The body is then gone carefully over with a soft mop, using plenty of clean water, and penetrating into every corner of the carved work, so that not an atom of dirt remains. The body of the carriage is then raised by placing the jack under the axle tree and raising it so that the wheel turns freely. This is now thoroughly washed with the mop until the dirt is removed, using a water brush for corners where the mop does not penetrate. Every particle of mud and sand removed by the mop, and afterwards with a wet sponge, the carriage is wiped dry, and, as soon after as possible, the varnish is carefully polished with soft leather, using a little sweet oil for the leather parts, and even for the panels, so as to check any tendency of the varnish to crack. Stains are removed by rubbing them with the leather and sweet oil. If that fails, a little Tripoli powder mixed with the oil will be more successful. 2,227 In preparing the carriage for use, the whole body should be rubbed over with a clean leather and carefully polished, the ironwork and joints oiled, the plated and brasswork occasionally cleaned, the one with plate powder, or with well-washed whiting mixed with sweet oil, and leather kept for the purpose, the other with rotten stone mixed with a little oil, and applied without too much rubbing, until the paste is removed. But, if rubbed every day with the leather, little more will be required to keep it untarnished. The linings require careful brushing every day, the cushions being taken out and beaten,
and the glass sashes should always be bright and clean. The wheel tires and axle tree are carefully seen to and greased when required, the bolts and nuts tightened, and all the parts likely to get out of order overhauled. 2228. These duties, however, are only incidental to the coachman's office, which is to drive, and much of the enjoyment of those in the carriage depends on his proficiency in his art, much also of the wear of the carriage and horses. He should have sufficient knowledge of the construction of the carriage to know when it is out of order, to know also the pace at which he can go over the road he has under him, without risking the springs, and without shaking those he is driving too much. 2229. Having, with or without the help of the groom or stable boy, put his horses to the carriage, and satisfied himself by walking round them that everything is properly arranged, the coachman proceeds to the off side of the carriage, takes the reins from the back of the horses where they were thrown, buckles them together, and, placing his foot on the step, ascends to his box, having his horses now entirely under control. In ordinary circumstances he is not expected to descend, for where no footman accompanies the carriage, the doors are usually so arranged that even a lady may let herself out, if she wishes it, from the inside. The coachman's duties are to avoid everything approaching an accident, and all his attention is required to guide his horses. 2230. The pace at which he drives will depend upon his orders. In all probability, a moderate pace of seven or eight miles an hour. Less speed is injurious to the horses, getting them into lazy and sluggish habits, for it is wonderful how soon these are acquired by some horses. The rider was once employed to purchase a horse for a country friend, and he picked a very handsome gelding out of Collins's stables, which seemed to answer to his friend's wants. It was duly committed to the coachman who was to drive it, after some very successful trials in harness and out of it, and seemed likely to give great satisfaction. After a time, the friend got tired of his carriage, and gave it up. As the easiest mode of getting rid of the horse, it was sent up to the rider's stables, a present. Only twelve months had elapsed. The horse was as handsome as ever, with plenty of flesh, and a sleek, glossy coat, and he was thankfully enough received. But, on trial, it was found that a stupid coachman, who was imbued with one of their old maxims that it's the pace that kills, had driven the horse, capable of doing his nine miles an hour with ease, at a jog-trot of four miles, or four and a half, and now no persuasion of the whip could get more out of him. After many unsuccessful efforts to bring him back to his pace, in one of which a breakdown occurred under the hands of a professional trainer, he was sent to the hammer, and sold for a sum that did not pay for the attempt to break him in. This maxim, therefore, that it's the pace that kills, is altogether fallacious in the moderate sense in which we are viewing it. In the old coaching days, indeed, when the Shrewsbury wonder drove into the inn-yard while the clock was striking, week after week, and month after month, with unerring regularity, 
27 hours to 162 miles, when the Quicksilver Mail was timed to 11 miles an hour between London and Plymouth, with a fine of five pounds to the driver if behind time, when the Brighton Age, tooled and horsed by the late Mr. Stevenson, used to dash round the square as the fifth hour was striking, having stopped at the halfway house while his servant handed a sandwich and a glass of sherry to his passengers, then the pace was indeed killing. But the truth is, horses that are driven at a jog-trot pace lose that elan with which a good driver can inspire them, and they are left to do their work by mere weight and muscle. Therefore, unless he has contrary orders, a good driver will choose a smart pace, but not enough to make his horses perspire. On level roads this should never be seen. 2,231 In choosing his horses, every master will see that they are properly paired, that their paces are about equal. When their habits differ, it is the coachman's duty to discover how he can, with least annoyance to the horses, get that pace out of them. Some horses have been accustomed to be driven on the check, and the curb irritates them. Others, with harder mouths, cannot be controlled with the slight leverage this affords. He must, therefore, accommodate the horses as best he can. The reins should always be held so that the horses are in hand, but he is a very bad driver who always drives with a tight rein. The pain to the horse is intolerable and causes him to rear and plunge, and finally break sway, if he can. He is also a bad driver when the reins are always slack. The horse then feels abandoned to himself. He is neither directed nor supported, and if no accident occurs, it is great good luck. 2,232 the true coachman's hands are so delicate and gentle that the mere weight of the reins is felt on the bit, and the directions are indicated by a turn of the wrist rather than by a pull. The horses are guided and encouraged, and only pulled up when they exceed their intended pace, or in the event of a stumble, for there is a strong though gentle hand on the reins. 2,233 the whip, in the hands of a good driver, and with well-bred cattle, is there more as a precaution than a tool for frequent use. If he uses it, it is to encourage, by stroking the flanks, except, indeed, he has to punish some waywardness of temper, and then he does it effectually, taking care, however, that it is done on the flank, where there is no very tender part, never on the crupper. In driving, the coachman should never give way to temper. How often do we see horses stumble from being conducted, or at least allowed, to go over bad ground by some careless driver, who immediately wreaks that vengeance on the poor horse which might, with much more justice, be applied to his own brutal shoulders? The whip is of course useful, and even necessary but should rarely be used, except to encourage and excite the horses. End of section 094